So um, <laughs> I'm looking at the schedule. This is my first time inside Santa Cruz. So I don't know if Leslie is going to do more announcements now or if I get started. Because it's, it's all yours, dear. It's all mine. Okay, great. You need me down here, but mm-hmm. go for it. <coughs> so it's really a delight to be here with all of you. And um, teach this course up at Stanford on compassion cultivation. And I thought we could talk about that a little bit tonight if you wanted to. And we could also, I could also give more of a, of a Dhamma talk, a little bit of a Dhamma talk, and infuse it with some of that. So I'm trying to decide what you might enjoy. Um, this could be an opportunity to have a thank you so much. <clears throat> My allergies are going crazy. To have a little bit of a QA. I can say a few things just to get it started and then we can have a discussion um, about this topic because it's a it's quite a beautiful topic. And um, Or I can I, I can I can do the more classic Dhamma talk. A little bit about me that, that Leslie um, might not have actually known, but um, my background is that um, I'm a former monk. I, I lived in Burma for some time and practiced uh, quite intensely uh, while I was in Asia. I've been practicing for uh, years now, and. Um, so I, I, I really love this meditation business. <laughs> and uh, the course that we teach up at Stanford is a course that um, is rooted in contemplative practices. And we, it's a parallel track program where uh, we teach a protocol uh, on cultivating these qualities of compassion and then it, that's one track. That's the track that, that um, I'm one of the instructors for. And then the parallel track is with the neuroscientists that, who are doing functional MRI studies to see what happens to the brain when we do these kinds of practices. And they've been doing this for a number of years um, with mindfulness. So uh, with the program that John Kabat-Zinn started and Bob Stahl um, is one of the uh, main teachers in, in the whole world, actually. You're so lucky to have him here in Santa Cruz. Uh, <clears throat> but they've been doing studies on mindfulness for 30 years, 35 years or something now. And it's all over the world. You can hardly go anyplace where they don't know what MDSR is. And so this compassion program uh, started at Stanford probably about five years ago. And it grew out of a, uh, it grew out of uh, an encounter at the Mind Life Institute meeting over in India where the neuro- top neuroscientists in the world will go on, a <coughs> on an annual basis and 
mainly to Dharamsala, but they do they hold the meetings sometimes in Europe and sometimes in America. And the Dalai Lama um, actually uh, issued a challenge to the scientists at one point, and he said, "You know, you come every year and you present all this incredible um, research that you're doing, but you." It seems like you dedicate all of your resources to studying pathology. What would happen if you actually took some of those resources and looked at what would, what goes on if you do things that if you took up practices that were pro-social or that um, were positive, to put it in sort of lay language, and, and the scientists sort of took up the challenge, and so part of Part of um, the studies that have been done on mindfulness uh, really grew out of that. And the studies that are being done now are being done specifically on compassion. And we have to, for those of us in the compassion world, we have to thank all of the work that the people doing MDSR have done for the last 30 years because where they have gotten in 30 years has taken us about five years but that's because they did all the work and we just came in on the coattails of it but mindfulness is something that you have to develop you have to work at it and you have to cultivate this as a practice compassion by contrast is a natural innate Response, and one of my uh, monastic teachers uh, has a, gave a beautiful description of how uh, a beautiful description of compassion, uh, but also of the other Brahma Viharas. And if you're not familiar with the Brahma Viharas, there, there's there's four, and in the Tibetan tradition, they're known as the four immeasurables. So there's this quality of loving kindness, which is called metta. There's this quality of compassion, which is called karuna. The uh, quality of um, sympathetic or empathetic um, appreciation or joy, which is called mudita, and then uh, the quality of equanimity. These are four immeasurables. And so the, <laughs> the teacher said, these, all of these qualities emerge out of love. And, but they all express in different ways. So, for loving kindness, it's, it's when, when you hold the genuine wish for someone to be happy, to be well, the genuine wish for goodwill. And genuine friendliness. I just, I just want you to be happy. I want you to be safe. I want you to thrive. I want you. And it has nothing at all to do with whether you do something that I want you to do. There's no conditions attached to it. With compassion, this is a quality where, when love, and I love this description, when love meets suffering the heart's natural response is compassion. And the reason that I like this definition or this way of describing it 
is that people think that compassion is a quality that we can sort of make ourselves do, that we can make ourselves be compassionate. And that is not, that's not the case. When we're trying to make ourselves be compassionate, we're having something happen, but it's not generally compassion. So I have people say to me all the time, oh, I should have been more compassionate. I should have done this. I, if only I, if I, only I was more compassionate or something. And <clears throat> there's, there's really no way that you can make yourself be compassionate. You can create the conditions in, in which compassion can arise. But when, when this quality, this unconditional quality of goodwill and, and love encounters suffering in another person or in yourself, then it will naturally express as compassion. And I'll say a little bit more about this later. I just want to go through these four things because I love, this is a very easy way to, to get a sense of what these different Brahma-viharas um, are. The third one is uh, sympathetic joy or empathetic um, joy. And that's the feeling of like, if something wonderful happens to you, I genuinely am delighted for your good fortune. Okay. I don't have a thought bubble that says, oh, good for you, and why didn't it happen to me? You see? So there's, there's, no, there's no separation between me and the other when this quality is coming forth. This doesn't get as much airtime, but in fact it's a beautiful quality. This quality to be genuinely happy for someone else. You see? So if you think about it, if... if uh, if if you saw uh, like a like a child learn how to swim or something, and they just are so happy that they can now go into the swimming pool, and you just are happy for them, you see, it has nothing. There's it's just all about them and and your happiness for them. So this can express it in many different ways. But the beautiful thing is that this is a quality that's infused with connection. It's, there's, if there's any sense of separation, this quality cannot actually manifest. And it's the very same thing with compassion. If, if there's any sense of separation, then you fall out of the zone of compassion. And it's one of the ways that you can tell when you're actually being compassionate. So I will talk a little bit more about that. And then the fourth, the fourth quality is that of equanimity. And so his simple little pithy description of it is when love meets acceptance, the result is equanimity. So <clears throat> when we can be with whatever the situation is, without resistance is what that means. It doesn't mean that everything is suddenly okay and, and calm. It means that we're okay. And, you know, we're in the middle of the hurricane that's swirling around us, but we're okay. We're still, everything is fine in that way. And that's what equanimity is. It's this beautiful quality. So it's this quality of acceptance. So, um, 
Does anybody want to share what? Well, let me just ask you to popcorn out, um, rather than having anybody feel like they're on the spot, what you think some qualities of compassion might be. Now, I'm going to prime the pump a little bit because we just went through that meditation. So some qualities could be this feeling of spaciousness, this feeling of openness, this feeling of acceptance. It could be a feeling of letting go. It could be a feeling of tenderness. Any other ideas? Generosity. Thank you. Not thinking about yourself when you're doing and not thinking about yourself. Okay. Groundedness. Say? Groundedness. Groundedness. Light. (laughs) Thank you. Attunement. Say? Attunement. Attunement. Having some knowledge of suffering? Having some knowledge of suffering or experience? Having some knowledge of suffering. Great. Yes. Wanting to touch someone. Wanting to touch someone. To reach out and touch someone. We call that connection. Yeah. Resonance. 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 (laughs) Great. One more? One or two more? The description made me think of like you have to create a vacuum, get your own stuff out of the way, and then that will be your natural being. It will just come forth. It'll just come forth. Yeah. So all of those are spot-on descriptions of compassion. But you know, someone's idea of resonance. Someone said resonance would not might be might not be someone else's idea of resonance. And someone's idea of fill in the blank might not be somebody else's idea. Although, when we say these qualities, we all recognize them as compassion, right? Did anyone not recognize what anyone said as being compassionate? Right. So, in order to actually talk about compassion in a way that everybody knows that you're on the same page, you have to have a de- definition for it. And for those of people in this room who have taken my course already, they, they, they know the definition. I should ask my students what the definition of it is. You look right over here, huh? <laughs> Alright, I won't put you on the spot. But, um, your comment is the very first aspect of compassion. It's a cognitive awareness that suffering is happening, either for another person or for yourself. So you have this awareness that suffering is going on. And then the second aspect is emotional. It's an, it's an affective response to the awareness of suffering. It's got this emotional quality to it. We know that suffering is happening and we feel something, right? The third is, is maybe the most important in terms of distinguishing compassion from empathy. And that is 
that it's the wish it always has the wish to alleviate or mitigate the suffering so compassion will always have this component and then uh, the fourth is the motive it's a movement towards altruism it's the motivation to action if there is some action to be taken now in some cases there's nothing that you can do you see in some cases to try to fix something is completely useless and it's decidedly not a compassionate action it's an imposition you see it's a way of trying to be comfortable with something that is difficult and you can't be and so you just busy yourself and try to fix it so um, to try to cure someone or fix someone is in some cases much different than caring for someone you see that curing that fixing quality can actually feel like an assault to some people you see if it, if it doesn't First of all, if it can't be fixed, but secondly, it's, um, and this is something that's so important, is that uh, <coughs> we fall out of touch with other people when we're imposing our need to be comfortable. So when I do grief work, when I went through my grief bereavement training, they did this beautiful, simple. They gave us this beautiful, simple instruction, which is so obvious that I don't. I, most people don't think about it until it's actually pointed out. We're told, you know, we're going to be with people who are really in deep distress, and so we're going to be with people who are crying and people who are angry and just really heightened emotions. So when a person starts to cry and you pick up the Kleenex and give the Kleenex box to the person, (coughs) it seems like it's a generous thing to do. But in fact, sometimes that interrupts the person's process and it sends a message to them in some unspoken way that you're uncomfortable with them being authentically where they are. And so they start to close down around it. So you see this oftentimes when a person um, is surrounded, the person is terminal and and dying and they're surrounded by their family and their family is fight, 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 we're going to beat this, we're going to beat this. And then the dying person is exhausting themselves trying not to trying to protect their family from the fact, from the reality of this situation. I just witnessed this last weekend. I, I was called to a hospital where the mom was on a ventilator and she can't, you know, she, she needs to be on a ventilator in order to stay alive. And, um, and she needs her family to say they love her and that you know that they're there. That's what she needs. 
and they keep saying, you know, breathe, don't forget to, don't forget to breathe, and it's all about a medical thing, and I'm, I'm saying that like it's, you know, like I'm making light of it, I'm not, my heart was breaking when, when I saw this, because when we fall out of presence with someone else because we become so distressed ourselves, we inadvertently fall out of presence with ourselves, and then we're no good to anyone. So <clears throat> when this happens, it's oftentimes referred to as compassion fatigue, but in fact, I <clears throat> have you all heard this term compassion fatigue? Yeah. Well, there is no such thing as compassion fatigue. <laughs> now, some of my colleagues will disagree with me, but behind closed doors, they will say, well, we know there's no such thing as compassion fatigue, but it's so much part of the vernacular that rather than to you know, counter it, we just call it compassion fatigue. What is actually happening is empathic fatigue, empathy fatigue, empathic distress it's called. And the difference between empathy and compassion is that with empathy it's the, the willingness, it's it's the ability to resonate with what someone else might be feeling and the willingness to feel it. It doesn't mean that you can actually feel what someone else now some people can almost do that but it's that you can imagine what someone else is feeling and you have a willingness to feel it so you can understand that in a situation like that there's only so much empathy that you can have before boom, you go right over the edge it's like a, there's an empathy tank, but there's no such thing as a compassion tank. Compassion emerges out of love. And the truth of the matter is, just check your own experience. The more you love, the more generosity you have, the, the more generosity there is. The more love you have, the more love there is. The more compassion you have, the more compassion there is. You can't run out of compassion, but you can run out of empathy. Empathy can overwhelm you. You can feel so strongly for someone else or get so um, involved in what's going on for someone else that that it can, can literally knock you sort of off your perch, so to speak. So... Um, so I, I, I want to give you an example from my own personal life, which my students have heard that I'm going to share it anyway. You can hear it again. <coughs> so <coughs> I was a new hospice worker, and I was um, I was working at a residential hospice in San Francisco, the San Hospice Project, and um, there was a woman in the hospice that was uh, uh, she had no family 
and very few friends. She was a lovely woman, but that, that was just her situation. And she was dying from esophageal cancer. And she went into uh, an active dying um, process. Right? She was she was dying. And um, so they asked the volunteers um, if we would sit visual with her because she had no one. And so in my enthusiasm for doing this work, I very naively volunteered to, to be one of the people doing that. And I got the shift from 2 in the morning until 7 in the morning or something like that. It was right in the middle of the night when everything seems more intense if you're struggling. And when I arrived there, her name was Muriel, and when I arrived, Muriel could not lie down anymore because she was suffocating. She couldn't breathe. And so <clears throat> the other volunteer was sitting on the edge of the bed holding her up. And <clears throat> she was really agitated and almost panicked because she would try to breathe and then she couldn't breathe and then she'd get her breath and she was, and this was sort of the state at which I arrived and I was a totally green volunteer. I was a, almost a brand new volunteer, but they didn't have many choices, so they took me. So I moved in, and I'm sitting on this, the bed, and I'm holding the area up, and she was quite small at this point, so it wasn't difficult to hold her up. But what was difficult was that she was so upset, she was so frightened, she was so panicked, and she would try to breathe, and she couldn't breathe, and then she would just go completely, and she would fall into a panic. And I kept saying to her, Muriel, watch me breathe. Just watch me breathe. Try to breathe with me. And then I would breathe slowly. And so she tried it, and she could get her breath for a few breaths, and then she would lose it again. And I, so this went on for two or three times. Muriel, watch me breathe. Watch me breathe. And, um, and then she lost it again. And I repeated the same thing. You know, it's like a broken, what is that, that the definition of stupidity? is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So I said, watch me breathe, watch me breathe, Muriel. Just try to watch me breathe. It's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. At which point this woman opened her eyes and with this look of, is this the dumbest man? <laughs> and she said, God damn it, Robert, it is not going to be okay. I am dying for Christ's sake. And in that moment, she gave me a precious gift to know all she needed me to do was to sit there and hold her and and let her know that she was cared for and wasn't alone. That's all she needed. That's all that I could do. I couldn't make her suffocation go away. I couldn't make her death go away. She didn't expect me to do that. And when I tried to fix that situation, it had more to do with my level of discomfort 
than her actual situation. I mean, I was responding to it. I don't want to be terribly harsh on myself, but the fact is that I lost connection with her, and in the process, I lost connection with myself. And she actually brought me back. And so we just sat there. I just held her all night long. And then she died in the morning. But this was... This is the difference between empathy and compassion. Because holding her in silence and letting her feel my care and connection was an expression of compassion. Trying to fix this unfixable situation was an example of what is called empathic distress. So what many people do, whether you're in a life-death situation or whether you're in, um, you know, some more normal (coughs) exchange with families or friends or colleagues or, or whatever, um, when when we fall out of connection with what's going on within us, we are also out of connection with what's going on with the other person. And therein lies the role of mindfulness in the service of cultivating compassion. Because Without mindfulness, you don't even know that you're not present any longer. You see? When, when, when you are mindful of what's happening in your experience, you know the difference between when you're present with someone and when you're distracted, when you're lost in thought, or when you're lost in emotions, or whether you're, when you're lost in some sort of a deep underlying um, Tendency, a mindset, so to speak. And when, when, uh, and when that gets out of sync, it's very easy to identify that um, when you bring mindfulness to the process. So they've done studies, um, and I, I was actually going to do my whole talk on this. Study, but I'm just going to wrap this in. They have done studies where they've looked at um, how people engage or disengage with one another. In terms, of, they've done this specifically with healthcare workers. But how one engages or disengages, and rather than to get lost in that, to begin to use that as a barometer to tell where you are in the continuum of connection with one another. So <clears throat> there's, there's this quality of um, when you're faced with a helpless situation like the one I just described with Muriel, <clears throat> what happened to me was I went into this mode of hyper-engagement and hyper-engagement has an anxious, pre- uh, uh, pressured, uh, a desperate quality to it. And it's it's related to a sense of, just as I said, empathic over-arousal. I was agitated by this state. And a lot of people will 
find themselves doing this as a default mode. They're fixers. As soon as something happens, they go into a fixing mode. Do you recognize this at all? Do you, do you recognize it? No? No? Right. So, so this kind of hyper-engagement uh, has certain qualities to it, and some of them I just described to you. The other, the opposite is called, it's a hypo, it's an under-engagement, and it feels resigned and passive and apathetic, um, and this is the state that's, that is related to empathic distress, and it causes sort of burnout, vicarious traumatization, and so on and so forth. And um, it doesn't make any difference whether you go into a hyper engagement or a hypo engagement, both of them will disconnect you from what's actually happening with in relationship with one another. But more importantly, or equally important, is that it, it disconnects us from ourselves so that we don't know that we're actually experiencing this. For a, So the way that I understand it in my own direct experience is that when I'm upset about something, you see, there's this quality of suffering from being upset. You know, I'm agitated and I'm feeling the effects of the agitation, but I don't really name or know that I'm agitated. I'm just suffering from agitation. But the moment I know that I'm agitated, the relationship with the suffering changes. It's not like the suffering magically goes away, but the relationship to it changes. And in that changing relationship, there is a kind of spaciousness that allows me to come back into presence. Because when I'm just suffering, I'm overwhelmed. But when I know that I'm overwhelmed, I'm already coming back into presence. You see? It's like if you get angry with somebody, right? And you just spin out into some argument or some irritable lashing out or something. You're just lost in it. But the moment that you know, oh my God, anger is here. You see, once you can identify anger, then there's the possibility that you can see that anger has consequences and this is where anger will lead and, you know, if I do this, it's going to harm someone else, it's going to harm myself, I'm going to regret what I've said. It's not that anger is an unnatural emotion, it's a very natural emotion and sometimes it's a very appropriate emotion. But when we get lost in these things, we lose presence and this is where mindfulness comes in. So in order to cultivate a quality like compassion, we have to be able to be with that place inside of ourselves that's difficult, that feels raw, you see? Or we have to have the courage to sit with Muriel while she's dying and not abandon her because we are upset that this is scaring us. So a lot of people think compassion is this soft California touchy feely kind of thing. 
compassion is absolutely powerful and it requires tremendous strength and courage. Sometimes it feels very, um, it feels that nice sort of way, but sometimes it really requires that you um, be very clear about your boundaries and it doesn't mean that you allow people to behave poorly or that you allow yourself to be poorly. It means that even if someone is behaving poorly, you still see the humanity in them underneath their behavior. Does this make sense? Is this making sense? So why would you want to be compassionate? You're Okay. Why would you want to be compassionate? Or let me put it this, let let me ask it this way. Not why would you want to be compassionate? Why might you not want to be compassionate? What would prevent you from being compassionate? Yeah, I have a question um, about that exactly. Um, I know that people who are drawn to uh, therapeutic positions, caretaking and therapists of all sorts, um, often they come from families where one of the where their parents were mentally ill or alcoholic or severely dysfunctional in some way. And for me, uh, working as a therapist for many years or caretaker, I, uh, I started not to trust my own motivation for caring because of that sort of it wasn't even deeper than fixing, but it was sort of a mindset of, okay, this is my role, and it seemed like a, a, a one that society would sanction, and it seemed, it seemed like a good thing to do. But but then I started questioning more and thinking, well, why why do I need to do this? To do to to take care of other people, to to work in a profession that requires a lot of empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just felt like, uh, you know, is this, a, is this a, some kind of deep mindset that I need to uproot? I, I, I became suspicious of my own motivation. Of your motivation to be a therapist? Yeah, to be, to, or even in, in, in more casual relationships, to be, uh, to be compassionate, to be, to be there. It seemed like, kind of like, I couldn't be sure of what my motivation but how healthy it was. So, I'm going to be completely honest with you because I'm not really understanding what the quandary is. Are you questioning your your wish to be compassionate with other people? Well, or the urge to be compassionate is to feel... The urge to be compassionate is to alleviate suffering. I felt like, well, why is that always my urge? Maybe I need to learn how not to be that way. Otherwise, it's a compulsion. Otherwise, it's it's not freedom. Mm-hmm. So, is there a sense of obligation to be compassionate? I felt like it was more a sense of this is my identity. I built my identity on this kind of a personality. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's not so healthy in the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. So, so, well, that's 
maybe something worth investigating, but in terms of, of whether compassion should be withheld, I would ask you, if you withhold compassion, what does it feel like? If you withhold compassion, if you were to withhold compassion, what do you think it would feel like? Well, it just it, it feels when I do that, it feels like I'm holding on. I'm keep trying very hard to keep my boundaries. Mm-hmm. I just I just don't want to feel compulsive about it, about being compassionate. Okay, so so rather than um, focusing on compassion, I would say uh, just as a suggestion, you can try this is to bring mindfulness to this quandary of compulsion and make that an inquiry make that inquiry the object of the meditation rather than whether compassion is um, you know you should or you shouldn't be compassionate because my response was that that in every situation compassion will always bring freedom and liberation and that's part of the reason that that definition works so beautifully well um, across the board but uh, if one feels like they're being like they're forcing something or they need to do something in order to feel happy the condition for the happiness is an obscuration to compassion. So what you're describing would be called a fear of compassion. And that's actually what I'm, uh, I'm asking people for. Other fears of compassion are, at Stanford, you can imagine it's, it's, it's not a mellow place, it's a highly competitive place, and so um, people are afraid that if they're self-compassionate that their house of cards is going to fall in on them and people are going to get ahead of them and they're going to be exposed as frauds and so on and so forth. People are afraid to be compassionate because they think that um, if I'm kind to someone and compassionate to someone and they're needy, they're going to suck me dry. <laughs> Or they're going to latch on to me, and this is going to, you know, this is another. Uh, people are afraid to be compassionate because they think that they need to sort of be harsh with themselves and critical of themselves in order to motivate themselves. When in fact, studies have shown that that's the exact opposite: being self-compassionate and, and you know. Self-kindness is actually what what um, is beneficial for people. So these are some of the reasons why people, you know, these are some of the things that obscure people from being compassionate. Here's another one. This one is the one that I'm guilty of. It's all right for you not to be perfect, but God forbid that I shouldn't be perfect. I have to be perfect. We have we can't cut ourselves any slack. We can accept that other people are human beings and can do 
you know, be less than perfect, but we always have to be perfect. Does anybody relate to that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Please. I was just also going to throw in a, a teaching I heard one time, and some of you may have been around for mm-hmm. with Jill Shepard, that was so helpful, where she talked about all of the Brahma Viharas, the four immeasurables, kind of as a package, and that we start by softening the heart with loving kindness. And then when the heart's kind of softened, then we're better able to let in the pain and the joy. But it doesn't work without the balancing and kind of crowning quality of equanimity, which helps to hold the pain and joy. And so for me, I've sometimes needed to recognize I had to step back and really cultivate some equanimity as a way to hold in balance and to find where that balancing point is when it might really be more self-compassionate for me to do something at a certain point in time that nourished that steadiness and equanimity. Um, more directly. So, equanimity can be a vague sounding word, but I've come to really get more kind of a self sense, a body sense of when I'm feeling equanimity and what helps me to cultivate that. And that's made it easier to find that balance for me. I can just sort of speak from personal experience. These qualities um, sort of wrap into one another. It's not like they're separate and isolated. They all sort of flow into one another. Especially loving kindness and compassion is flip side of the same coin. It's just a different expression in a way. So for some people, you know, when you teach or when you're taught loving kindness practice, like I was one of these people. I just did not get metta practice for years. I did not get it. I couldn't feel anything. I was given these phrases to say, may I be happy, may you be. And it was just like rote nonsense to me. It was like gibberish. And at a certain point, I realized, oh, well, this becomes like the breath. It's the object of the meditation. You keep the focus on the, on the phrases, and then you become concentrated. And, and that's a very legitimate form of what they call samatha meditation, concentration meditation. But that is not loving kindness practice, that's concentration practice. So um, the so some people will report just what I shared with you that it's difficult for them to understand what the feeling of loving kindness is. So this protocol that we teach at Stanford is uh, there's a slight shift in, a slight but very deliberate shift in the way that uh, it's taught. Because we, rather than using the phrases to evoke the feelings, we evoke the feelings and then we use the phrases to support the actual feeling of loving kindness. So, <clears throat> one of the ways that we would do that is that we, we rather than starting with ourselves because that's so charged for most of us 
we start with someone that's easy to feel affection for. So we we say, pick a loved one. And then the instruction is that a loved one, you have to pick the right loved one. (laughs) So we say, probably don't pick your partner. You know, and don't pick your 14-year-old teenager who's going through a difficult phase. See? So, so these relationships where we're in negotiations with one another get complicated. Does the toilet paper come over the top or under the bottom? Where do you squeeze the toothpaste from? You see? So, <clears throat> but someone that's very easy to feel affection for. So if a person, if a parent had like a three or four year old adorable kid and a 14 year old who's going through a phase, better to go with the three or four year old kid than it is to. to. So it's important to get a loved one because it's not the right loved one because it's not so much who you pick, it's whether whether the feeling can actually be generated. So, so the instruction is, is very simple. It's like you, you pick this loved one, and then you're guided through a, a series of steps to imagine what it feels like somatically. What does it feel like when you think of this person? Could even be your pet. Could be the dog that meets you at the door wagging its tail, just so happy to see you. And you feel this, oh, this is wonderful. I love this I love my dog. I love my cat. I love my kid. I love my grandma. I love my etc., etc. And so this quality of feeling, this quality, so you get this sense of, of warmth or tenderness or goodwill or you think of someone and uh, you just think of what do you feel like when you bring that person to mind. Then you flip it over and you think of that person in distress going through some situation that it's difficult for them. It's <laughs> like it's difficult for me since my wife just fell asleep. That's <laughs> 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 difficult for them. And and then you see what does it feel like? What does it feel like when there's someone that you love in distress? You feel like you want to reach out and help. You feel some sort of tenderness for them? What what is it that you feel? So this would be the feeling of compassion. So some people report that um, they can't really get the loving kindness thing. But when they practice compassion, it comes and then they understand what loving kindness is. You see? So it can come through different doorways. So one person described that that was the very experience that they had. They were trying, they had picked someone that they thought they that they thought they should have as a loved one, but they weren't feeling anything. 
And then they were really upset because they weren't feeling anything. You see? And then they got themselves in a real um, state because they thought they were terrible people or something. But the moment that meditation shifted and they thought of this person, this loved one, in distress, you see? They picked their teenage daughter. And when they thought of her in distress, then their heart just completely opened with with a sense of care and concern and this feeling of compassion and they ah this is what this is loving kindness except it's expressing it as compassion. I can't stand that I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> My legs, my legs fell asleep and it's giving me hell. Maybe we all need to stretch. Yeah. If you want to all stand up, you can all stand up, but <laughs> you don't have to. But that <coughs> quality is a quality that um, can be recognized through mindfulness. And it's, you become sensitive to what these experiences feel like. It's the same feeling of being present with someone, or you're having a conversation, but you're planning your vacation. Or they're saying something, and you're not really listening, you're thinking of what you're going to say back to them. Or why they're wrong and you're right. Instead of just giving your full attention to someone and really listening. So, I want to say a little bit about self-compassion, too. Self-compassion is a quality. Um, Are any of you familiar with the work of Kristen now? Yeah? Sure. Uh, She's She's wonderful. I might have to sit in a chair. I just need a different cushion. This cushion has got me. <laughs> My tendon is locked up. Thank you. Uh, yeah, maybe. So much for being a mom for all this. We are the nature. Yeah, I was younger in those days. So, um, so Kristen now has three qualities that she, that she says are always present with uh, self-compassion, and those three qualities are mindfulness, the recognition of common humanity, and this quality of self-mentoring. So I'll say a little bit about each of those qualities, and then I want to talk, tell you an experience of, of self-compassion to just show you um, some different ways in which it can express itself. So mindfulness is literally the ability to recognize the suffering, the cognitive awareness of suffering. But it's that ability to be with that place inside of us that feels raw. It's where we lose ourselves and go down the rabbit hole. You see? And so 
when we touch that place, most of us just react and we go down the rabbit hole time after time after time. But with mindfulness, you begin to see and recognize what's happening and where you are. You see? So mindfulness stabilizes your ability to be with what's difficult. It doesn't make what's difficult go away. It simply allows you to be there. Common humanity is the recognition that everyone experiences that place of losing themselves. Everyone. Whatever is going on for you that's difficult doesn't separate you from other people. It actually connects you to other people if you see it in the, in the right way. So this quality of common humanity recognizes and accepts that at our core level, no matter what issues we're having that are difficult for us, we all are essentially alike in that we all want to be free from suffering. Is there anyone in the room that doesn't want to be free from suffering? Probably not, right. So, (laughs) another way of saying it is everybody wants to be happy. But I had a woman in my class in the wintertime who basically kind of said, that is not true. I do not want to be happy. (laughs) Okay. Do you want to suffer? She said no. And I said, okay, then think of it that way. So, common humanity recognizes that the suffering that you're experiencing isn't unique to you. There are countless numbers of beings throughout the world who are suffering in exactly the same way that you are suffering at any given moment. You see? And there are countless numbers of beings in the world that you are unaware of that are wishing you well by doing these Brahma-Vihara practices, these method practices and compassion practices, the same way that when you do them for other people, they probably don't know that you're doing them. So, in this way, when we see that, that our perceptions and beliefs about our inadequacies and our foibles and, and our, you know, we're frauds and we're this and we're that, that these things don't separate us. Everybody has these issues going on. So, <clears throat> common humanity. And then the, the third quality she refers to as self-mentoring. And that's where you become really sensitive to that inner voice, that inner critic that sits on your shoulder and yammers in your ear endlessly. When when you <coughs> notice that you would never dream of speaking to another person the way that you speak to yourself, that's the voice that we're talking about. And to learn to reframe that voice, to mentor yourself with kindness is is 
key to self-compassion. So um, to bring a little science into this, they've done recent neural neural imaging studies where uh, um, they looked at people who were anticipating uh, difficult, stressful situations. And when they did the functional MRIs, the part of the brain that went wild, that lit up, was the ancient part of the brain, the limbic brain, the seat of emotions, fight, flight, or freeze, the amygdala and the anterior cortex. And uh, they saw, because this study was looking at the inherent neuroplasticity of the brain, and they saw that through a simple reframing of the way that that situation was being held, rather than anticipating that it was going to be a disaster, if you just had a more open mind of it, another part of the brain was activated, which was actually the reward centers of the brain. And, and what happens is that new uh, neural synapses could be trapped and that part of the brain began to grow new gray matter. And the limbic brain quieted down and a shift happens because every time we default to reacting in a certain way, we reinforce that habit of mind as though we were going to the gym working a muscle. So when we begin to train and create these new neural pathways, we are actually beginning to counter these old habitual habits of behavior, of thoughts of thinking, and so on and so forth, and create a new uh, a new default response to the challenges, the ebb and flow of what's you know, what occurs in our daily life experience. And these studies were important because they indicate that depending on the way that we train ourselves and depending on the way that we respond, it mitigates the kind of emotional response that we're going to have. So it helps us to, in terms of emotional regulation. I love that science is proving what what meditators have been practicing for thousands of years. And I love the fact that science isn't saying they're discovering anything new. All they're doing is validating what's been, what people have been doing for years and years and years. So self-compassion can be something as simple as just naming that you're having stress. That a, a situation is difficult. And Kristen will offer very simple things. Uh, this one is a little bit hard for me, but she'll say, like, oh, just talk to you. I say, oh, honey, this is hard. You're okay. And you know, hug yourself in that. And says, you know, that works for some people. And it's a great thing to do because it's like taking a breath in the middle of a freakout. It just breaks the momentum. Even if it's only for a moment, it breaks the momentum and it helps to reestablish you with what your intention is, which is to be compassionate in, in, in this case. 
and that helps bring us back into presence. And we might fall out 10,000 more times. It doesn't make any difference at all as long as we learn these simple techniques for coming back. So sometimes self-compassion can feel as simple as what I just described. And sometimes it's just naming that you're hurting, that suffering is happening. And and then there's another way, but I want to respond. Well, it made me think about the idea of um, faking it till you make it. Would you say that that's the same thing? Are are you talking about that? Yes, I absolutely (laughs) would say fake it until you make it. And the reason is that these meditation practices work when you think that they're not working. They absolutely do. But you have to do them. You see? When people come to the course, one of the things that I try to be really clear about is that you can come to the course, you can take the course, you can read all the books, you can read all the articles and the scientific studies that I put on the website and all of the other readings and so on and so forth, and and you'll get an academic understanding of what compassion is. But in order to actually have the experience of what it's like to live a compassionate life, you have to do the practices. You have to do the meditation. You have to develop it. Because it's about learning to discipline the mind. The mind does not want to be with that which is uncomfortable. It just doesn't want or are unpleasant. And that's what compassion is all about. It's with being with that quality that causes us to be stressed out. So when love meets that quality, the heart's natural response is compassion. So sometimes compassion, self-compassion, can show up rather than that feeling of warm warmth or tenderness or caring or something. Those sort of more, um, I don't want to say ordinary, but more expected kinds of uh, uh, ways that it will show up. Sometimes it shows up um, differently. And I'll share an experience from my personal life, which which, <clears throat> which is very personal, but it's apropos to what I'm talking about, and it, it, it can be a real eye-opener for it. it. was an eye-opener for me, and I hope it will be for you. And if it's too personal, I apologize in advance, but I'm not on a limb, so I'm going to go for it. So I had an experience <clears throat> where, <clears throat> first of all, I, I should say, as a long-time meditator and as a hospice worker and as a grief counselor, I thought I knew a little bit about compassion. And I did. I did know a little bit about compassion, but I didn't know that I had never experienced self-compassion. That I didn't know. And I had an experience when I went through my training um, where something triggered me. I had an event happen that was very triggering to me. It was it was so insignificant that um, it really confused me because there was nothing 
significant about the trigger, other than the fact that it triggered me. And I literally went over the deep and and was drowning in uh, a full-blown panic attack that went on almost for a day, just unrelenting, and I could hardly breathe. And <clears throat> this experience was so intense, and I know that whether you're a man or a woman, nobody wants to feel out of control and vulnerable, but it felt so, as a male, it felt so, I felt so ashamed, I felt so uh, emasculated and demeaned in some way, and just, it was like everything that I could think about that would be the worst thing in the world that I want to feel, I felt it like a hundred times over. And it just was, it would come like tsunami in waves and waves and just kept overwhelming me. And um, and as I said, I've been meditating for a long time, so I have more than a few tools in my meditation tool bag. And I pulled out every one of them to try to make this feeling go away. Follow this character. I wanted this feeling to go away. I wanted to cure it, to fix it. And what happened was that it was like I was throwing gasoline on a fire. It was just fueling it. it the more I tried to resist it, the stronger it became. And I thought, you know, I... I'm going to really lose it. I've got to sit down in my cushion and try, you know, I'm going to meditate this away. God damn it. <laughs> and I thought, this is useless, because if I sit in my cushion, I'm going to be bouncing off the walls. I've got wild elephants going on in my mind, uh, raging. And I sat down, and sure enough, wild elephants were ra- raging. And <clears throat> I was so distraught. And somehow in the middle of that, a thought floated across my radar screen that I was reacting to a biochemical feeling, a somatic experience, that I was telling this story about. You see, so this was the first moment that I had enough mindfulness that happened by accident to see that I was spinning this story in response to this feeling. Now the feeling could be akin to like almost getting run over in a crosswalk and then you survive and you're just like this. That really intense adrenaline, just intense adrenaline in poison in some way. And in that moment I saw suffering. In that moment, I I was feeling suffering, but I hadn't recognized it. See? So I actually saw suffering. And in the moment I saw suffering, I saw it was my suffering, that I was suffering. See? And in the moment that I saw that I was suffering, I disappeared and it became the suffering of all people. 
I saw this as the suffering that everyone experiences, and it's true, everyone does experience this suffering. And in that instant, <coughs> I had a meditative experience where I felt the crown in my head literally open, and I felt as though that weight of a lifetime or lifetimes pass through my body and come out my hands and feet. And for the first time in my life, I had experienced self-compassion, and I recognized it as self-compassion. And in that moment, I didn't feel warm and fuzzy. I felt liberated. I felt released. And it wasn't that the resonance of that shock suddenly disappeared. It was still there, and it was just as strong as it had ever been. But I saw that it was something that was going to, it just needed to process. It just needed to be released. And so in an instant, my relationship to it changed. I was in the eye of the hurricane, and it could just go, you see. And I didn't do anything. In fact, I wasn't there at all. I just witnessed this thing happen. And this is another way. This was a beautiful experience. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't screw up all the time and forget that I had that experience, but the fact is that having had it, I see what the power of self-compassion is, because literally it changed the way that I practice. I no longer struggle with my meditations at all, at all, at all, at all. I see everything as an opportunity to, to be held and met with kindness, everything. So every time there's a struggle in meditation, it's not that I'm a screw-up, it's that I have an opportunity to practice self-compassion. You see? And every time you meet a difficulty or a challenge in that way, you're, you're living in that moment self-compassion. You're a living example of what self-compassion is. And this is transformative. It changes your life. So it changed the way that I practice, it changed the way I relate to myself, and it changed the way I relate to everyone else, and it has never gone back. Now, as I said, that doesn't mean that I don't curse at my computer screen <laughs> and get mad when people are cutting me off on the freeway or something like that. But it's all done, it's all held in a different way. There's much more resilience, there's much more uh, flexibility, there's much more, it's a quicker recovery time. Uh, and you begin to catch these things and you just become a little bit kinder and nicer um, in the process. Something like that. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful practice. So this practice of self-compassion is, is so terribly important. And I want to just say um, that compassion <coughs> moves in three directions. Seems obvious, but I'm going to name them anyway. 
So compassion is from self to other, from other to self, and from self to self. So, how many people in this room find it easier to give compassion to someone else than it is to give compassion to yourself? Look around. You see? This is absolutely the case here in the West. How many people find it easier to give compassion to someone else than it is to get compassion from someone else? Yeah. So, um, you're, you're a unique group because that's actually the most difficult thing for people to do. And I was surprised to learn that I thought it would be self-compassion. But here's another um, uh, another assumption that I want to um, uh, bring up. But how how many people? think that in order to be compassionate, really compassionate, you have to be self-compassionate first. So that's a common assumption that's not accurate. Because you can, there are people, and I was one of those people, where you learn what compassion feels like by offering compassion to other people. So by working in hospice and by working with grieving people and so on and so forth, I did know what compassion felt like. But I didn't know how to give that compassion to myself. So it wasn't that I learned how to give myself that compassion, but it was that when that self-compassion arose, I recognized it because I had been able to practice compassion for other people. So that's a a common assumption. There's another assumption that I want to um, uh, debunk for, for you all, since I only have a few minutes left. And that is that people will frequently um, express this idea that if they're compassionate, whatever trouble they're having, that they're feeling compassionate towards, that that's going to be the resolution and reconciliation of whatever that problem happens to be. And that is sometimes the case, but more often than not, it's not the case. So in the example that I just gave you of my own experience, my initial experience with self-compassion, I was still like this. You see, it was, it was as though I had stepped up the curb and the truck almost ran me over. I jumped back onto the curb. I knew I was safe. The driver knew I was safe. He drove on. I'm standing there. But I was still like this. I'm still like that. And so it was like that. It, it didn't resolve that. But what it did was to change my relationship to that. So <clears throat> sometimes things just can't be resolved. Muriel was dying, and that's all. She looked at me and said, it is not okay, I'm dying for Christ's sake. You see? So, compassion then expressed as courage. The courage, the willingness, and the strength to not abandon your seat, to hold your place, to hold 
occur in the kindness of their heart to feel that connection. You see? And one of the most precious gifts that we can give to one another is to actually be present for someone. To actually see them. To actually hear them. To to be so present that we hear not only what they're saying, what their words are, but what they're not, what they're leaving unsaid. There's a beautiful quote by Thich Nhat Hanh where he's, it's like a prayer to Kuan Yin or Avalokiteshvara, the incarnation of infinite compassion. And he says, we aspire to learn your way of listening because just by listening we heal other people by bringing that quality of presence and, and care and concern. So... So I have a lot more that I could say, but we're pretty much out of time. And I just want to ask if, if there are any any questions while we still have a few minutes, or comments, or anything that you would like to talk about, please. Well, it has and speak a little bit louder because my. It has made me uh, remember a time when a friend of mine was dying in Santa Barbara. He was a hospice. And I was much younger. But um, I, I ended up leaving to go do some frivolous thing. I think it was actually swimming or whatever. He was a swimmer, I was a swimmer. And even as I was going, I realized this is not the right action, but I was clueless what the right action was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the years have gone on, and I have thought to myself, you could have just sat there and read a magazine and just stayed in the room, you know. Um, we had kind of pushed past our intimacy level, so neither one of us were really very comfortable with the situation. Mm-hmm. And I chose because I didn't know what else to do. I was so uncomfortable mm-hmm. to leave. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish I had just stayed. You know, just stayed put. But really, I wasn't mature enough at the time to figure out that's what it's called for. Thank you very much for sharing that. And I want to say that <clears throat> this is an expression of self-compassion. To be honest with yourself about the opposites that exist in that scenario. You wish that you had done something, you didn't, you knew, you know now that you weren't able to at that time, and all those things are true simultaneously. And by not abandoning yourself, that's an act of self-compassion. And the reason that it's important to begin to recognize when self-compassion or compassion arises is if you're trying to cultivate a habit, if a moment like that occurs and you don't recognize it as a moment of self-compassion, it's like a random act of kindness. It comes and it goes, and so you can't really build a habit. So, But when you know that that's ha- what's, what it is by cultivating mindfulness, then you can begin to connect the dots. 
And it's just like if you're meditating and developing a concentration practice. It's the <coughs> first you find the breath. Let's say you're using the breath as the object. First you find the breath. And then you learn to be with the breath for longer and longer periods of time. To be more continuous with your attention. And as you're continuous with your attention, you begin to, the mind begins to stabilize and settle down. And so you cultivate, in a way, the habit of learning how you settle down. So to cultivate compassion, it's no different. To cultivate compassion, you recognize what is compassion. And part of it is like recognizing what the fear of compassion is, what obscures it. But you recognize when compassion shows up, and then, ah, this is a moment of compassion, this is a moment of compassion, this is a moment. And then you become very familiar with what it feels like <clears throat> when you're in a zone of compassion. And at the same time, because you're cultivating, because you're using mindfulness in order to do this, you become very familiar with what it's like when you're not in the zone, when you've lost presence with yourself. Does that make sense? And it's just like Leslie was saying, you know, equanimity, sometimes you need equanimity, sometimes you need to soften your heart in order to let the suffering in. That softening of the heart is an expression of compassion. I, I just also wanted to add, from my personal experience, again, and I've heard it from others, we can tend to speak about compassion and self-compassion as if they're difficult things that take a lot of work. And in some ways they are. And yet there's also paradoxically this just this natural flow that actually can be a tremendous source of well-being. Some of you know I work with people at Dominican Oaks and I teach a course based on James Barrows' Awakening Joy. And one of the pieces in the course that I see awaken the greatest joy for the participants in the class is the cultivation of compassion. Yay! <laughs> I like that. I like and that. And it's not a fake kind of, oh, I'm being a good girl kind of thing. It's a genuine feeling of the rightness of being there with the juicy kind of richness of human experience. And I've felt it with the folks there. I've had what I consider to be the privilege to be part of the journey to death of three of the students I've worked with there. And there's some of the richest moments in the last few years. Yes, they hurt. And they were beautiful. And just that feeling of rightness, of following my heart. I, I don't know quite the words to describe it, but it's just juicy, it's rich, it feels like a source of well-being. And so I just want to add a voice that I'm not going around trying to be St. Leslie. I'm really cultivating something that for me has just in addition to the well-being, 
And I would say, go ahead, be St. Leslie. We need a, we need a few more St. Yeah. Leslie's in this world. I'm, I, I fail at that, but um, just the natural flow yeah. of being with those rich human experiences has just been amazing for me. So I want to end this evening, or my portion of this evening, with the poem I read at the end of the meditation because I love this poem. <laughs> it, might, it might resonate even more for you now. It's called Dear Human. And for some of you, you might not have been here when I read it. It says, Dear Human, you've got it all wrong. You didn't come here to master unconditional love. That is where you came from and where you'll return. You came here to learn personal love, universal love, messy love, whole love, infused with divinity, lived through the grace of stumbling, demonstrated through the beauty of messing up often. You didn't come here to be perfect, you already are. You came here to be gorgeously human, flawed and fabulous, and then to rise again in remembering. But unconditional love, stop telling that story. Love, in truth, doesn't need any other adjectives. It doesn't require modifiers. It doesn't require the condition of perfection. It only asks that you show up and do your best, that you stay present and feel fully that you shine and fly and laugh and cry and hurt and heal and fall and get back up and play and work and live and die as you. It's enough. It's plenty. So I thank you all so very much for your kind attention this afternoon or this evening. A reminder that some of the folks who are here have added to the richness of the evening by providing some beautiful snacks that are over here. There's also a flyer for a four-day retreat that Robert and a colleague will be doing right up here at Vajrapani for an intensive on cultivating compassion. On Thursday, come, you're all welcome. Yeah, our good old Vajrapani right up out of our own area. And, um, of course, we make all this possible here at our center and thank people like Robert through our own generosity. So if you're not familiar with our way of doing that, we have two baskets outside. One is to help support our center and one is specifically to thank Robert for his gifts this evening. Although bringing brownies and um, lovely fruits are pretty good. Thank you, too, Robert. So I just want to encourage folks to stay for a while, enjoy some more visiting, and some opportunity to talk more informally with Robert, and to eat those yummy goodies. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Yeah, and if you took questions and stuff, it's great if you can put it back.